0: It's Tuesday, July 2nd, I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Genetic genealogy has been used to identify more than 40 murder and rape suspects, in some cases at least 50 years old. There was always a question as to whether this investigative technique would hold up in court, and now we have an answer. William Talbot II was tracked down through DNA that two cousins uploaded to a genealogy site and he was just found guilty of the murder of a young Canadian couple in 1987. Megan Molteni, science writer for Wired, joins us for the big win for genetic genealogy. Next, as plastics continue to overtake the world, scientists are making progress in developing new ways to break down the plastic and keep them out of landfills and out of the ocean. Scientists have now created a biological enzyme that can digest plastic into their chemical components so it can be reused. Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science, joins us for the latest on plastic eating enzymes. Finally, it's almost the 4th of July, and with that comes fireworks. While nothing says America quite like bright exploding lights in the air, it can cause a terrible situation for the thousands of people that get hurt when they go off, birds in the air, and man's best friend. Caitlin Gibson, feature writer for the Washington Post, joins us for why you should always be careful during the holiday and watch out for ruptured globes. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. State of Washington versus William Earl Talbot II. We, the jury, find the
1: defendant, William Earl Talbot II, guilty of the crime of
0: first degree yes. murder as charged in yeah, October. Joining us now is Megan Molteni, science writer for Wired. We're going to be talking about one of the more fascinating stories that we've found out about in recent times, ever since the Golden State Killer was arrested, genetic genealogy. It's been used to identify more than 40 murder and rape suspects in cases as old as 50 years old. It's led to guilty pleas, confessions and everything. But up until this point, a trial that started earlier this month, we had never gotten a conviction. It had never gone to court and proved its mettle there. There was always concerns whether... It would be a sure thing in court because of the way the investigation, once they find this DNA and they match it to a person, there's it's always been kind of unclear if this would hold up in court. But we did get a guilty verdict in Washington for a man named William Earl Talbot II. Tell us a little bit about this story.
2: This case is coming out of Snohomish County, Washington, and it's almost a 32-year-old case. So in November of 1987, there was a young couple from Victoria, Canada, Tanya Van Koelenburg, and her boyfriend at the time, Jay Cook. And they were supposed to just have like an easy overnight trip to Seattle, take a road trip, take a ferry, pick up some parts for Jay's dad and and be back home. And they disappeared and their bodies were found about a week later separately. They were about 60 miles away from each other and they had each been killed in very violent but very different ways. And for 31 plus years, Stohomish County and Skagit County, because the investigation spanned multiple jurisdictions, never really got a substantive leave. They never arrested anyone and the case went very, very cold. But in the days following the Golden State Killer case going public last April, the detective on the case in Snohomish County, a guy named Jim Scharf, had actually been reached out to by this company called Parabon Nano Labs that the county had been working with to try to piece together a composite of what they thought the killer would look like in this double homicide case. They had been able to pull some DNA from the crime scene back in 1987. So this company, Parabon, already had it on file. And when it became obvious that they could then upload it to this public genealogy database called GEDmatch, Detective Scharf said, yeah, let's go ahead and do it. And if Few days later, they gave him a name, and that was William Earl Talbot. So at that point, the police start trailing him, surveilling him. They pick up a cup that he drops out of his car. The DNA is a match to this person called Individual A, who they had been seeking for for 31 years. And at that point, he was arrested. And so that was last May. And his trial started earlier this month in Everett, Washington. And everyone thought this was going to be a case where genetic genealogy was going to really be on trial. We were going to hear from the genealogy just at Parabon Nanolabs and hear all about this. And and actually, that didn't really wind up happening. Yeah, they didn't dispute it
0: at all, really.
2: No, it was actually pretty surprising to those of us who were there. So this actually kind of happened before trial started in pretrial motions, where Talbot's defense attorneys decided they were just going to treat genetic genealogy like any other tip, just like if you called it in on a hotline. They didn't go after it in court. They reached an agreement that Detective Scharf would be the one to describe what happened and to not belabor the point. And so it didn't really get the kind of scrutiny that people had been expecting. And I think what this basically, you know, the people, law experts who I talked to after the verdict came down on Friday said is this basically tells us that we didn't know whether juries were going to be skeptical of this kind of evidence or if they think genetic genealogy was going to be kind of a problematic investigative tool for identifying suspects. And, and now we know that you can convince a lay jury to convict someone found as a suspect through this this new technique.
0: What does this mean still, though, for privacy issues? There's still a lot of people and experts that say that the future of this is still kind of uncertain. This is the first time this is the first conviction that we've gotten. But everybody's concerned about people being turned into genetic informants. Basically, if you upload something, is my family member in danger of getting caught up or something like that?
2: There's a couple issues that privacy advocates are talking about. And so one of them is that the kind of genetic information that is contained in the profiles that are being created to upload to sites like GEDmatch are really different than the kind of profiles that exist in CODIS, these criminal databases that have been around since the 90s. There's vast troves of personal information in these genetic files that could be family secrets about being born out of wedlock, or it could be carrying genetic diseases, things in your health history that's really sensitive information. And there are no limits right now to how police could use that information. That's a concern. Right now, there are currently no laws or regulations to say how serious a crime it has to be for police to investigate it and using this technique. And right now, the only limitations are these kinds of terms of services that these databases and companies use. But as we all know, terms and services change. And, and in fact, just during the time that Mr. Taubat was awaiting trial, JEDMatch changed their rules actually more than once because there have been cases where police wanted to use them for less violent crimes. And so it's kind of created this slippery slippery slope effect. I mean, I think as was reported in the New York Times, in Texas, another GEDmatch search occurred after the police said they were looking for a sexual predator. But then when a genetic genealogist gave the police a name, they charged him with burglary instead. And so we're bumping up against a lot of these questions. And the debate is still going to rage on, even though the Talbot case gives prosecutors and police departments who've been rushing to use this technique some sense of security, that they'll be able to use it to secure convictions. But there's kind of all these privacy debates that are in no way lessened by the outcome of the trial.
0: Megan Multaney, science writer for WIRED, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks
2: for having
3: me. Recycling is actually very similar to those projects that you did in elementary school where you recycled your own paper. It's very much just grinding the existing plastic down into pellets, into smaller parts, and then mashing it together to reconstitute it
0: into something else. Joining us now is Corinne Iozio, executive editor at Popular Science. Perfect timing for you to come on. This is kind of a follow up to a story we just did on the podcast about how plastics are consuming the world. They're ending up in oceans, they're ending up on mountain peaks. Who knows how it gets up there? It's ending up in our food. It's all over the place. And part of the problem is a lot of times we use plastic. Only once and then discard it. And part of the efforts to fix this is to improve recycling and find other methods of how to break down these plastics scientists are making progress with better plastic eating bacteria they're hoping that they can engineer organisms that might do a better job of recycling for us so tell us a little bit about this team there's a molecular biologist named Christopher Johnson who's working with a team and they found this enzyme they created this enzyme that can help break down plastics
3: So they actually created this enzyme by accident in the process of trying to push a scientific paper that they had through review. And what they discovered is that this enzyme looks at plastic, PET plastic specifically, which is a lot of the single use stuff, the shampoo bottles, the water bottles, the potato chip bags. It looks at it and it sees like a buffet. And it just it turns it into it's molecular parts, kind of this soupy mixture. And the idea here is that companies can take this stuff and turn it into products that are actually better and more valuable than the original water bottle or shampoo bottle or potato chip bag that you started off with.
0: And that's a really important distinction is how these enzymes work. It breaks them down into their chemical components so that companies can reuse it and make other stuff again. A lot of times I think people think that's exactly what recycling is. No, but That's not what recycling is, is at all. It breaks things up into smaller bits and pieces. That's why we have this problem of microplastics. So tell us what recycling actually does.
3: Recycling is actually very similar to those projects that you did in elementary school where you recycled your own paper, it's very much just grinding the existing plastic down into pellets, into smaller parts, and then mashing it together to reconstitute it into something else. And when we look at that, the something else that we're talking about is usually not such nice stuff like industrial carpeting and other things that are just going to ultimately wind up wasted in a landfill anyway. And so what these scientists are saying is like, we're not going to quit our plastic habit but we can be better at making more impactful, more lasting uses for the plastic that's already out there in the world.
0: So tell us a little bit more how this enzyme works. Uh, Reading through the article, I was looking at how some of the scientists were kind of experimenting with it. They use an example how they went to go get a a bunch of different bottles, Diet Pepsi and Dr. Pepper bottles, and they put the enzyme near it and they thought that it was going to work really slow. They came back like four days later and it was starting to really munch away and break this stuff down.
3: So what they were working with was a plastic that was discovered at a dump in Japan. And they called the researchers who discovered this particular enzyme, named it PETase, PET after the type of plastic that it was devouring. And what the scientists found was that they thought that there was a relationship, some real strong similarities between PETase and a naturally occurring enzyme called cutinase that exists in the world to tear down these waxy polymers that are on plants. And in order to figure out the relationship between those two things, they had to sort of figure out what the evolutionary steps were between them. And they figured, well, we're going to take this petase we're going to turn it back into the thing that is related to, kootenase, and end up with something that's nowhere near as good as petate. And they came back, and it was just going to town. And they were surprised. They thought they mixed up the samples. They tried it again and again. And what they discovered is that in the process of trying to prove this relationship, they accidentally discovered this mutant enzyme that was way more effective than where they started.
0: This is not ready. These enzymes cannot eat the plastic fast enough to at scale to be used in the industry at large right now. I think one of the quotes from the article says organisms would need to churn through around 906,000 tons on all days ending in Y to get the job done. So this is still a long way off, but they're learning more about how this works and, and it's showing to be pretty promising right now. Tell us what a future recycling plant would look like though. If once we can get this going,
3: it's not very far off from what you might picture. Just imagine that right and they just put in the plastic, they throw in, you know, the pet ace or whatever mutant version of pet is, and the pet ace is like, sweet, I am so hungry. And they just let it churn. They're trying to figure out what the ideal conditions are to facilitate these reactions, thinking about... If it's warmer, does that help? And we have some evidence to suggest that it would. So just really refining what the right cocktail is, what the right cooking temperature and time, it's really a recipe. And it's going to take a lot of trial and error to figure out exactly what that is. One of my favorite statistics to throw out in this instance is that by 2050, there will be more plastic in the ocean than fish, which is a truly alarming thought.
0: Corinne Iozio, Executive Editor at Popular Science, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thanks, Oscar.
1: Everything from serious limb injuries, fingers blown off, he used a phrase that has haunted my dreams, which was ruptured globes, which was his way of describing what happens when you put your eye right up against a firework that hasn't gone off, looking to see why it hasn't detonated, and
0: then it detonates. Joining us now is Caitlin Gibson, feature writer at the Washington Post. Fourth of July is just in a few days, and one thing that everybody looks forward to but then there's a lot of people that may not look forward to it, is fireworks. It's just part of the fabric of the 4th of July. And when things go right, they can be kind of terrible. When things go wrong with these fireworks, they can be kind of terrible. You guys are doing a series of stories calling into question the supposed joys of summer. And I saw the article. that was great. I loved it. Let's talk about that. So tell us why fireworks aren't always the best. Well,
1: there's a lot of reasons why folks don't love fireworks. First of all, if you're the parent of a small child, especially the ones that go off all neighborhood long, all summer long, those can be really tough. If your kid's waking up, the people who own dogs, dogs are notoriously terrified of fireworks. People get injured when they use them. This is, of course, the backyard variety versus the professional sort. But a lot of people don't know how to use them properly. So they wind up in emergency rooms. They start fires. They hurt birds. If you're a wildlife rescue person, you're often dealing with a lot of fallout and calls about scared rabbits and birds that have fallen out of nests. So surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, there's a lot of reasons why people might actually object to this beloved and time honored tradition.
0: I mean, they look great. It's fun when they go off and you see all the colors in the in the sky, but really when you boil it down, they are explosions and these are in the hands of people that are drinking and having fun. Maybe not the best option exactly. there. So, okay, let's talk about Some of the injuries. I mean, and these are things all people know, but you know, it's kind of interesting to to get to the numbers and see what is actually happening. You spoke to a guy named Al Saketti, he's the chief of emergency medicine at Our Lady of Lords Medical Center in Camden, New Jersey. And he was talking about all of the different injuries that come in. How many people get injured every year? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Last year, about 9,100 people wound up in emergency rooms, which, you know, that's a lot of people. And that was all fireworks-related injuries. More than a third of those people were kids under the age of 15. And the vast majority of all those accidents happen in the months surrounding July 4th, so like late June to late July. Because as you know, I mean, while everything is supposed to be focused around the 4th of July holiday, people start to celebrate it weeks early and sometimes it goes for
0: weeks past that. <laughs> well, you buy so that, you buy all your fireworks and then you have to test them out and then you exactly. have to finish all the ones that you didn't finish on the 4th of July.
1: Exactly. You got to use them all. So he has seen pretty much everything in the 36 years that he has been, you know, an attending physician, he was telling me. Everything from serious limb injuries, fingers blown off. He used a phrase that has haunted my dreams, which was ruptured globes, which was his way of describing what happens when you put your eye right up against a firework that hasn't gone off, looking to see why it hasn't detonated, and then it detonates. So a pro tip is just never, ever do that One thing I learned reporting this uh, that I would love to emphasize is just, yeah, if it doesn't light, just it's a goner. Don't try to light it again. Just let that one go. So a lot of people get hurt that way, trying to reignite something that didn't detonate properly the first time. Lots of injuries uh, he was saying, you know, just to face, torso, what, we would ex- what you would expect people yeah. leaning forward over a firework. Yeah.
0: yeah, I like the way he said it. You see a lot of injuries to the soft body parts, and those are the mm-hmm. ones that you do not want to be injuring. Just a quick story of one-fourth of July. This is when I was a child. A neighbor had the big mortars. You know, uh, you put it in the big tube. It flies up. It makes a big explosion in the air. It got kicked over or something. And we saw that thing fly across the street into a neighbor's yard. And it actually blew up on one of the neighbor girl's legs. She had to be taken oh. to the hospital. They came over. You know, obviously the police came. They were trying to nail him oh, for it and everything. No. And, and, you know, this is just one of those things that could potentially happen. Oh, that's really horrifying. Right. Uh, oh. Okay, so beyond that, I mean, uh, there's fires that get started by this. Tell us this case of the birds in 2010, because this is kind of interesting.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah. So the birds in 2010 in Beebe, Arkansas, there were a bunch of fireworks that went off for New Year's, ringing in the New Year, starting again before midnight. And so around, I believe it was like around 10 or 11 p.m. is when it started, just carcasses, bird carcasses started falling out of the dark sky. Like for the folks in this town, I think it must have felt completely apocalyptic. And some of the quotes at the time in the news reports were much to that effect. So the birds, especially around that time of year in the wintertime, they roost in massive numbers and they were so terrified by these loud explosions, they just took off blind and they don't have good vision at dark, which is why they roost overnight. And so they just flew into everything in their path and that wound up being the conclusion For why there was this massive die-off, but it was 5,000 of them, 5,000 red-winged blackbirds that just (laughs) rained down over this town that had no idea what was going on, but a pretty bleak way to ring in the new year.
0: We're animal lovers here on the podcast. The other one that everybody knows of, dogs, dogs notoriously are afraid of the bright lights and the explosions. CBD oil to the rescue in a lot of these cases. There's a lot of people that are increasingly giving their dog CBD oil just to help calm them down. And it's not just on the 4th of July, like we're saying with some of the injuries, even this is like a whole month long process because people are starting early and ending late with these
1: things. I spoke to a woman named Simona Ponte, who was telling me about that. And she was saying out in Oakland, in California, leading up to the 4th of July, the local pet shops just they just move the CBD oil right up to the checkout register because it's they're in such demand, particularly around that time. But you're right, it's all summer long. And it really is really tough on dogs for the same reason they're scared of thunderstorms i mean this is like that but magnified vastly so it's yeah. really distressing for them so get the white noise machines cranking, and don't aim them at anybody and again this is a light one if it doesn't if it doesn't light the first time don't try to reignite it
0: ruptured globes <laughs> yeah, K- ruptured globes caitlin gibson feature writer at the washington post thank you very much for joining us
1: thank you so much for having me